God's word this morning comes to us from Colossians 1, uh, 9 through 14. Let's read together. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to echo uh, my brother David's prayer. Uh, Please be be here with us. Uh, Be in my mouth, be in our ears, be in our hearts. Um, Open to us the message that you have for us this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. In 1977, the Bee Gees released their hit song, Stayin' Alive. Some of you remember that. I hope most of you know it. Uh, The first line goes like this. You can tell by the way that I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk. I'm not sure what that walk looks like, but it must be pretty distinctive, and I'm pretty sure it involves disco. But you can tell something about a person by the way that they walk. Someone who walks quickly with purpose, leading with their torso, that person is confident. Someone who walks a little bit more like this, leading with their head, that person is a little bit more uncertain a little bit insecure. According to Paul, Christians have a walk as well. Christians have a distinctive walk, something that someone can look at this person, the way they go through life, and tell that they are a Christian. Let's look at what Paul is talking about this morning. In our text, Paul is writing to a Colossian church uh, that he has been praising in the previous verses. See, in, in Paul's epistles, he always starts with a thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving tells us something about the church that he's writing to. It tells us what Paul thinks of this church. Um, he says about the Colossians, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Right? Paul has been hearing about the Colossians and their faith, their hope, and their love. This is what Paul wants for all of his churches. It's actually a very uplifting Thanksgiving section. In contrast, we could talk about the Thanksgiving section in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a church that struggles with pride. And when Paul 
gives thanks for them, listen to what he says. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's not, he's not thanking God for anything in the Corinthian church, only for what God has given them. A subtle rebuke of their pride. They do not have anything that has not been given them. Or we could talk about the Galatian church, where Paul skips the thanksgiving altogether. In fact, he, he goes right to this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In Galatians, Paul opens with an immediate rebuke. But in Colossians, Colossians, he is thanking God for their faith, hope, and love. Colossians is not written to a church that is living in sin. It's written to faithful Christians, like many in this church. This, this is a message that is for us. So Paul is asking God that we walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. I think it's really important to understand that we're talking about the manner of the walk, not the path that we take. Paul could not care less about where you are walking in life, right? In Roman society, everything was organized in, in a class system. Freed people, free people, free citizens, were the people who owned everything. Most people in Roman society were slaves, um, which wasn't necessarily uh, what we think of typically laborers or domestic servants. Um, slaves included teachers, uh, merchants, laborers. Every, there were a lot of people in Roman society who were slaves. But it, there was a clear hierarchy. It was better to be a free person than to be a slave. Better to be a man than to be a woman. Better to be an orator than a bricklayer. Better to be a farmer than to work in the mines. We have a system that has a lot of similarities to that. Uh, we call it your calling. Uh, it just so happens that your calling is something that you enjoy and compensates you well. And we think that when you've found your calling or when you're living into your calling, that's when you can glorify God. Paul, that's, that's a completely foreign idea to Paul. Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you rich? Are you poor? You can walk in a manner that pleases God. Do you walk to a white-collar job? Do you walk to a blue-collar job? Do you work at home? Whether you work at the gas station or the White House, you can walk in a manner that is worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that Paul is saying here is about changing your financial situation or your station in life. He is talking about living in your current situation in a way that glorifies God. This is something that applies to all of us. Paul's language here also gives us a deeper context to what he's talking about. Paul prays that we may be filled with the Spirit. As Amanda read earlier in that very difficult text from Exodus with a lot of names, um, the, the, the language of filling with the Spirit um, comes in a couple particular texts, one in Exodus and one in uh, Deuteronomy, 
where we are, or excuse me, 1 Kings, where we're talking about the filling of the tabernacle and the filling of the temple, right? God fills these particular craftsmen. Bezalel was filled to create the tabernacle and its furnishings. And in 1 Kings, uh, Hiram was filled with the spirit to create the temple and its furnishings. So when Paul prays that we may be filled, he's praying that we are filled to walk, filled to walk in a manner that produces fruit. What Paul is saying is this, the lives of the saints, full of good works, are the furniture that fills God's temple. Let me say that again. The lives of the saints, your lives, full of good works, are the furniture that fills God's temple. God, through his spirit, is working in us to create his temple, to glorify himself, to create a beautiful space for him to inhabit. Now, this walk has four components. The Greek actually lays this out fairly clearly. Um, There are four adverbial participles. Okay? What you need to know about adverbial participles is two things. One, that they are distinct, and two, that they are adverbs. Okay? So adverbs are about the way that we walk. Again, it's not about where we're walking. It's not about the path that we are on. It's about how we walk that path. Now, we all know that good sermons only have three points. So it's a good thing that the first two of these adverbial participles are so closely connected. Bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Paul's mind, these two things are intimately linked. In fact, it goes all the way back to creation. God mandated that humans fill the earth, they are fruitful, and that they multiply, right? They they are fruitful and they increase. What Paul is saying here is that the language uh, that he's using goes back to this bearing fruit and increasing, except the way that we do that now is not by having biological children. It's the fruit that we produce in our walk and the increasing knowledge of God. And they go together. Um, Earlier in Colossians, again in that Thanksgiving section, It is the gospel, the gospel itself, that is bearing fruit and increasing. The word of truth, Paul calls it. The gospel is already bearing fruit in the Colossians as it is among you. And the gospel erupts into fruit, okay? It's it's not that you can have the gospel and understand the gospel and that it doesn't, it, can't, it doesn't produce fruit. The gospel, where it takes root, always produces fruit. The more we understand the gospel, the more fruit is produced in our lives. Hosea 4, I think, is a, an interesting counterexample. Um, in Hosea 4, God condemns Israel for the lack of knowledge of God and the resulting lack of fruit. Let me read it. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, 
Stealing and committing adultery, they break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. What God is saying here is all of this sin is a result of lack of knowing God. And contrary is Paul saying, you know God. And as you know God more, as you increase in the knowledge of God, you will bear fruit. In Paul's view, there are only ever two problems in in a person's life. Either they don't understand the gospel, or they don't know how to respond to the gospel. Jesus uh, made the same claim in in a text that Chris preached a few weeks ago, Luke 7. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, talking about the sinful woman, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The one who understands God's salvation, in this case, that sinful woman, responds appropriately. Right? The person who understands God's salvation wants to respond appropriately. We have created other categories. We might think some people understand the gospel, know how to respond, but just aren't very committed. And that's just not consistent with these biblical categories. Either we don't understand the gospel enough, or we don't know how to respond properly. And it's a journey, right? This is, this is something that we are all going through together. We are all growing into a richer understanding of the gospel, and we can always find better applications of the gospel in our lives. And that brings us to the third, the third uh, adverbial participle that Paul uses, and this is being strengthened. Um, this is the only adverbial participle in our, in our list, right, of these four categories that is passive. The strength does not come from us. We are not increasing our strength. We are being strengthened from God. Now, what kind of strength is this? To understand what kind of strength this is, we actually have to contrast it with something. And I'm going to take us into a dark, dark corner of the internet um, to an alternative worldview. And, and I think this will help us understand what kind of strength God gives us. All right? In, on the internet, and, and more and more in our culture, this, this is leaking out, uh, there's a philosophy called the red pill. Okay? It comes from the Matrix movie uh, from, the 19, from 1999. Uh, In this movie, Neo, the main character, is offered a choice between a red pill and a blue pill. The blue pill is about uh, living in continued comfort and ignorance. It's about going with the flow. And the red pill is about accepting uh, the disturbing reality for what it is. And so this red pill movement has latched onto this imagery, and they believe that the unsettling truth that they need to recognize is that our society is ruled by women. And it cre- this philosophy creates a vicious relationship between the sexes, right? They, they evaluate everyone, all people, on what's called their sexual market value. 
I don't have time to delve into all of the issues with this movement, but I do want to talk about one component, and that is dread. The red pill movement uh, views relationships in, in purely economic terms. It says that women are only looking out for themselves, so men should too. And it says since women are looking for stability and a provider, men have to keep them on their toes. And by keeping one foot out of the relationship, men keep women in a state of dread that this man will leave the relationship. And this, this dread is supposed to keep a woman more agreeable. Now, this is really manipulative behavior, but it latches on to something that's true, and that is dread is an excellent motivator. Um, how hard do we work to keep up appearances, right? Have you ever uh, been cleaning your house moments before someone uh, is set to arrive, a guest is set to arrive? You've probably cleaned harder in those few minutes than you had in the previous couple hours, right? And in many workplaces, they use this kind of dread or fear as a motivator. Uh, sports teams do the same thing. If you make a mistake, you will be reprimanded publicly Everyone will know you'll be ridiculed. That, it's a common tactic. Um, recent reports coming out of Ukraine talk about how Russian soldiers are told that they have to fight because the soldiers behind them will shoot them if they run. It's really very easy for us to see how much strength can come out of fear. But fear isn't cracked up, it's not all it's cracked up to be. People get tired of being afraid. At some point, uh, your wife is going to decide that she wants to be with someone who actually loves her, not someone who is keeping her in a state of dread. And that's why the Christian model of marriage uh, has nothing to do with dread. It has to do with vows and sacrificial love. If you keep your employees in a state of dread, right, at some point they're going to burn out and they'll move on. And it turns out that threatened soldiers with guns uh, actually just turn on their officers and then surrender if they are kept in a state of dread. Instead of being strengthened by dread, Paul wants us to be strengthened by God's glorious might. And what is that? I want to go to the Thanksgiving section of Ephesians where Paul talks about God's might. And this is what he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I could preach a whole other sermon on this text, sermon in a sermon, but I'm just going to point out two things. God's glorious might is Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Christ was given to us, to the church, to be our head, so we can be the fullness of the one who fills. All right? 
Paul doesn't want us to be strengthened by dread. He wants us to be strengthened by knowing that God has given us Christ and all his work. God doesn't have one foot out of this relationship. He isn't waiting for us to screw up so that he can break up with us. Look at the cross to see how committed Christ is to you, right? That's why we keep the cross central in our worship spaces, because it is a reminder of the lengths to which God has gone for you, to bring you into his family. We instead, instead of dread, we are motivated by our desire to please God and to thank him for what he has done. This is what it says in question and answer 86 of our catechism. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? The answer is this, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that our godly living, by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. So how do we experience this strengthening? How do we experience what Paul is talking about? Well, first, we go back to these first two, these first two items. We have to understand what, who God is and what he has done for us. You have to understand how much God loves you. I just want to look at some of the language that the scriptures use about how God relates to us. In Ephesians, it talks about God lavishing his grace on us. That, that word should just give us this image of God pouring out over and above what he, what he needs to. He just is pouring grace onto us. In Psalm 18, uh, the psalmist says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Delight. Is that, is that how you relate to God? Do you understand him as someone who just delights to see you, who delights to have you close? In Jude, um, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it says that Christ will present us before the presence of God with Great joy, extreme joy is the word in the Greek. Extreme joy. Is that how you understand the way that God relates to you? With extreme joy, delight. He loves to have you here. He loves to have you with him. And that brings us to the fourth item in this text. Giving thanks. Now, this is not just um, saying thank you for individual things. That's good, too, and that's part of it. But again, this is an adverb. This is about the way that we are walking through life. It's uh, better translated probably walk thankfully. We're talking about the way that we walk in the world. Um, and it's closely connected with the endurance, patience, and joy 
um, that Paul mentions here. These are all markers of the Christian walk, the Christian style. Uh, Since I'm using song examples in this sermon, uh, let me tell you about a song that came out when I was in high school. Uh, This is a little bit newer, and uh, you can tease me about it a little bit later. But Dashboard Confessional, okay? Does anyone know Dashboard Confessional? I'm getting one nod. Okay, two, okay. Um, They have a song about a rich young man who spends a few years uh, living life among the common people, okay? Just kind of living it up. This is about a young man who has a trust fund. He went to Cambridge, um, but he's, you know, experiencing life. And, uh, and the song is kind of calling this person out. Uh, it, it says this, For us, it's a matter of charging the gates. For you, it's a matter of blood and connections. Okay? Um, this, this song has always been convicting to me. What, this art, what the, the singer is saying is essentially, we have to prove something. We have something that we have to do. We have to make our own way in the world. You don't, right? Stop pretending to be like us. Stop pretending that you have a hard life. We have to make our own way in the world. We have to charge the gates. You don't. And then it says this, you've got a hard way about you for someone whose passage is already paid. And that just, that just hits me every single time. Why? Because my passage is already paid. And yet, I often have a hard way about me. So, in conclusion, what does our walk say about us? Um, Chariots of Fire, the great movie about uh, the 1924 Olympics, right? It contrasts really two British runners. Um, Harold Abrahams, um, he's an excellent runner, but at, towards the end of the movie, he tells his friend uh, that he's never known com- contentment. He says, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And he talks about how running is the way that he has to justify himself. He says this, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor. He's talking about in his Olympic race. Four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And the contrast here is Eric Liddell, who's a Scottish Christian. And he, he is actually, uh, he's a missionary to China and actually ends up uh, several years, well, couple decades later being martyred um, as part of his missionary efforts in China. Uh, And he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. What made Eric Liddell famous in Britain was that he actually refused to run on the Sabbath. He missed a big race because he just would not run on Sundays. That's something that you can only do if you have nothing to prove, right? How, how do you refuse to run if you need to run to justify your existence? You can't. You can only run if you already have everything that you need. So, 
When people look at us, do they see us trying to justify our existence? Are we forever pursuing a goal that we can't even define? Or do they see us feeling God's pleasure on our face? Do we have a hard way about us? Or is it clear from the way that we walk that we are already beloved by God? That our passage is already paid? That nothing is going to separate us from our Father's abundance? That he lavishes on us? Do you live in dread that God is looking for an excuse to abandon you? Are you terrified of making a misstep? Or do you live in a way that displays confidence in God's love for, for you and an eagerness to please him? All of us can walk more thankfully, and the formula is the same for all of us. Prayer and a better understanding of, what, of who God is and what he's done. And that's what we here at City Reform Church are all about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need more of you. We need to better understand you. Because we want to be more thankful. We want to walk in a way that pleases you. We want to walk in a way that displays the riches that you have given us. We want to walk in a way that shows who you are. So make yourself known to us and give us your spirit so that we can be beautiful furnishings in your temple. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Let's